Can I ask you all a, uh, an honest question? Are you tired yet? Are you tired? I am so tired. I think a lot of us are tired. I heard somebody describe it as the COVID slump. And I think we've got that COVID slump. You know, we're tired of the masks. We're tired of the social distancing, although I'm, I'm happy to be able to wear this mask uh, today. Tennessee, eight consecutive wins. We'll see, we'll see if we win next week against Georgia. So uh, hopefully we'll get to wear that mask next week. But we're tired of masks. We're tired of social distancing. We're tired of the hand washing and sanitizing. We're tired of the fear, the frustration, the anxiety. And it's so easy to feel despair because it's hard to see a clear resolution to this. I mean, I know it's out there somewhere around the bend, over the hill, maybe behind those bushes over there, right? There's got to be an end to this. And, and we're war-weary. I'm war-weary. I'm tired of the fighting. I'm tired of the political pandering and the posturing. Amen? I'm tired of the name-calling and the fake news and half-truths and lies and spin. I'm so done with all the riots and the chaos and the burning businesses and the crushed cars, the screaming and the vandalism, the disagreements and the Facebook arguments. I am so tired of it, aren't you? And I'm more weary over my own internal struggles, my own fights inside with fear and doubts and second-guessing myself. I'm weary of those inner battles of discouragement and worries about the future and financial decisions and family decisions and church decisions. I'm tired. I needed this sermon series, y'all. I needed this sermon series. Wednesday night in our study on What Are You Afraid Of? I read a quote from Charles Spurgeon where he was standing in front of his church and very honestly said in a sermon, he was preaching about depression, and he was very honest, and he said, y'all, I'm depressed, and I am preaching to myself as much as I'm preaching to you. Well, that, that encouraged me greatly. I don't think I'm depressed, but I'm tired. I am so tired, and I'm preaching as much to myself today as I am to y'all. just want to let you know that. I need to remember that the Lord is my shepherd. And that no matter what I may face, no matter what I need, in Him I lack no good thing. I need to remember that. That when I'm weary and restless, He provides me with peace and comfort. And sometimes He has to make me lie down and rest. Because He best knows what I need, far better than I do. And I'm thankful for those green pastures. For those still waters. And when I feel like I'm spent, and I just don't have anything else left to give, he restores my soul. And He guides me down the right path for His name's sake. And listen, never once has He ever guided me down the wrong path. He always guides me down the right path. And even when those paths lead into difficult and dark days, I'm not afraid. Because He has always, always been with me. He protects me. Sometimes He disciplines me. But through it all, He comforts me with His presence. Amen? I hope you've come to know Jesus as your good shepherd. I hope you know Him as your good and great shepherd. But in today's verse in Psalm 23, David shifts his metaphor a little bit. And we see that God, the good shepherd, is also our gracious host. 
And with this added dimension, we discover that in addition to his provision in the pastures and his protection in life's valleys, he also makes preparation for us before our enemies. Let's look at verse 5. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, and my cup overflows. The good shepherd has satisfied our needs, guarded and guided us through the dark valleys, and now he defends and honors us in the presence of our enemies. Now, there's some debate among Bible scholars about whether David has abandoned the shepherd motif in these last two verses. But I think of it as him expanding the illustration. See, God is still the shepherd, but even a good shepherd has occasion to welcome guests into his tent. And yes, we could interpret this as the sheep in the fold being fed while ravenous wolves are all around. But the language that David uses here in verse 5 is so distinctly different than what he's been using in the first four verses. Just like last week, we talked about how he had moved in verse from talking about God. Remember, he's talking about God in the first three verses. And in verse 4, he starts talking to God. I think here he has shifted a little bit to a different perspective on God's love and care and generosity. And really, if you think about it, as shepherd turned warrior turned king, this makes perfect sense for David. And a lot of people want to think and, and look at Psalm 23 as as kind of following David's stages of life and how his understanding of God grew in each stage. It makes sense because David started off as a shepherd and then he became a warrior who often spent time on the run in dark valleys and caves hiding from his enemies. Then he was anointed as king and then as king he desired to build the temple, the house of God. So imagine being David. Imagine being David surrounded by enemies. And maybe those are Saul and his men chasing after David. Maybe it's the Philistine army. Maybe it's even David's own son Absalom and his forces trying to overthrow David's throne. But imagine surrounded by those enemies yet feeling secure enough to sit down and have a feast. Isn't that amazing? Rather than feeling afraid or desperate or uneasy, rather than being paranoid... You feel confident, safe, and secure. What could ever make you feel that way when you're surrounded by your enemies? Well, when someone who's far greater and more powerful than your enemies has prepared the banquet for you, has anointed you with oil, has blessed you beyond measure, God, our gracious host, is so fearless so powerful, he doesn't care who watches as he lavishes us with honor and with gifts. He doesn't fear the reprisal of our enemies because he is far greater than our enemies. And David gives us three pictures of how God has prepared us to stand fearless in the face of our enemies. And let me pause right here and just say we have to remember that our enemies are not the Antifa rioters in Seattle. Our enemies are not those people who disagree with you on Facebook. Our enemies are not Republicans or they're not Democrats. Your enemy is not your ex, your boss, or that annoying kid in your class. Paul tells us in Ephesians 6, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Those enemies are real. People are not our enemies. People are the ones we're here to rescue. People are the ones who are the victims of our enemy, the devil. And he and his dark spiritual forces do seek to cause harm to us. They do seek to undermine our work for the Lord and to destroy our families, our reputations, our churches, our nation, and our faith in God. There is a war of ideas going on right now in our schools, in the media, online, in our national conversation. There truly are evil forces at work that is seeking to destroy all that is good and true and beautiful and right. Amen? 1 Peter 5.8 says that we must be alert and of sober mind because our enemy, the devil, is prowling around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. There is a spiritual war going on around us. And it pays to stay close to the shepherd when you've got predators on the prowl, doesn't it? These are the times we've got to stay close to our shepherd. And that's why the reality of the war around us should not cause us to be afraid. Even though we're surrounded by those who would do us harm, who seek to persecute us, who want to undermine the values that our families and our nation are built upon, we need not fear if we're with the shepherd. And why is that? Well, for one thing, we know how the story ends, don't we? I've read the end of the book. And guess what? The victory is already ours. We've already won the war. But the second thing is that our shepherd host knows our enemy well. God knows every trick and treachery and temptation that Satan will try to throw your way. And he knows how to defend you against them. But as Psalm 23, 5 illustrates, we can have confidence, peace, and joy in the midst of the battle because God, our good shepherd and our gracious host, has given us three important sources of relief for our war-weary souls. And the first of those he's given us is the prepared table. There's a prepared table. And I want you to notice first that it's a table that David sits at. This is no hasty meal grabbed on the run. He's not just snagging up some snacks to run while his enemies are chasing him. No, this is a celebration of victory. While he's still surrounded by his enemies, David acts as if he's already won because he trusts that he has. After all, I remember when he was facing down Goliath, he said, the battle belongs to the Lord. That's why he can sit down in the midst of the battle and have this feast. There's no sense of urgency or panic. There's no fear or disturbance. It's a picture of perfect peace and confidence. Now, the table in Mideastern cultures was a very powerful symbol. To be invited into someone's tent or home, to sit at table with them, was to be welcomed as family. It was to be accepted in exactly the way you were. Hospitality was, and still is to this day, a crucial aspect of Middle Eastern culture. And when you're a guest at someone's table, the master of the house, the head of that family, has assumed complete responsibility for your care and well-being. They would sooner die than allow harm to come to you as their guest. We see an example of this in Genesis in the story of Lot. Remember, Lot and his family were living in Sodom, which was a wicked city. 
And God sends these two angels to Sodom. And Lot meets them, doesn't know they're angels. But he invites them into his home as his guests to stay the night. Because he says it's too dangerous to be out here on the streets at night. So they come into his home. Well, the men of Sodom learn these guys are there and they come to Lot's home and they want Lot to send them out to them. And Lot instead offers to give them his own daughters rather than his guests. Now that seems backwards to us, doesn't it? But that's how seriously they take hospitality in the Middle Eastern cultures. Your name, your reputation or state on how well you treat and care for your guests. So consider how God has treated us as His guests. Consider how He lavishes us with the riches of His grace, not because we deserve them, but for His name's sake. Because His reputation, His character as our Good Shepherd and Gracious Host are staked on it. To prepare this table... Didn't mean to set the table. You know, we think, whenever I hear this, I always think of him like setting the table. Like, here's the tablecloths, and here's the plate, and here's the dessert fork, and the salad spoon, and the, I don't know. All that stuff that I don't know. That's not what that's talking about. No, to prepare the table was to prepare the meal. To prepare the food and the drink. Psalm 78 gives us a, a, an example of this. It recounts how the children of Israel were ungrateful and rebellious in the wilderness after all that God had done for them. And look what it says in verses 19 and 20. They spoke against God. They said, can God really spread a table in this wilderness? That's the same Hebrew phrase. Can God prepare a table for us in this wilderness? True, He struck the rock and water gushed out. Streams flowed abundantly. But can He also give us bread? Can He supply meat for His people? Well, we know the answer to that question. Duh, of course. Of course he can, and he did. We know that he did. And God, David uses the same image as God, as our deliverer, who is able to prepare for us bread and meat and water, even in the presence of our enemies. Now, typically in a Middle Eastern culture, while the master of the house would provide the meat, the bread, the drink, he didn't prepare it. See, preparing the meal, cooking the food, bringing the food out, presenting the food, all that was done either by his wife or daughters or by his servants. Again, we see an example of this in Genesis. Remember when the Lord and and those two angels that went to Sodom, they come in physical form to Abraham. And and Abraham sees these three guests and he says, oh, I've got to to feed these people. So he goes out and he kills a, a bull and he has Sarah prepare the meal. Or in the parable of the prodigal son, when the son returns home and the father welcomes him, what does the father do? He calls his servants and says, go and kill the fatted calf and let's throw a party. Neither Abraham nor the father in the parable prepare the food. They have their wife or their servants do it. But here, it is God who prepares the table. God prepares the meal. Our shepherd is also a servant. He is such a gracious host. It reminds me how Jesus took on the form of a servant. Jesus said, I didn't come to be served, but to serve. And even on the night he was betrayed, he put a towel around his waist and he knelt down and washed his disciples' feet. Truly the lowliest of servants' work. And God, the creator of the cosmos, takes the time to prepare His good and gracious provisions for us Himself. God doesn't delegate this to anyone. 
He prepares the table before us. And how did He specifically prepare that table? How does God make provision for the nourishment of our souls? What is the nature of this festive table? Well, as Paul says about the Lord's Supper table in 1 Corinthians 10, it's not the cup of thanksgiving for which we give thanks, a participation in the blood of Christ. And it's not the bread that we break, a participation in the body of Christ. The Lord's Supper table, which we'll observe here in a couple of weeks, reminds us that Jesus gave Himself for us. His flesh is our bread. His blood is our drink. He is the source of nourishment for our souls. And when we partake of the bread of heaven, we will not hunger. When we drink of the cup of Christ, we will not thirst. Because His Spirit becomes within us a spring of living water that wells up and constantly refreshes us. You see, this prepared table came at great personal cost for our host. For Jesus to prepare the table for us, he had to lay down his life for his own sheep, as our New Testament reading said. God, the gracious host, has invited you to this costly table, this lavish feast that he freely gives. He's invited you Have you accepted that invitation? Have you come to that table and partaken of the bread, the body of Jesus? Have you been washed by the blood of Christ? He died for you so that you may live. And I pray you would not pass up that invitation because when we sit at this table, there are no more enemies that we have to fear. The table has been prepared. The second thing that our gracious host gives us is the anointing oil. Now, how you interpret this depends on whether you think that David has completely abandoned the shepherd motif and moved to a a host motif or not. Is he talking about sheep and shepherds or hosts and guests? And I'm not sure that David wasn't implying both. Because after all, he did spend four verses talking about a shepherd and a sheep. And it would be weird for David, a shepherd, to then talk about anointing the head with oil and at least not have in mind what that meant for a shepherd and a sheep. So I want us to look at both angles of this. First, what would the anointing oil mean for sheep? Now, in his book that I highly recommend, it's been a great source for me in this series, the book The Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm, Philip Keller describes two afflictions that come upon a sheep's head that shepherds guard against using oil, specialty oils. And the first are the nasal flies. And yes, it's as disgusting as it sounds. So bear with me. These nasal flies would lay eggs in the nose of sheep. I know, it's disgusting, I said that. And the larva will bore into the nasal passageways of the sheep. And as you can imagine, this is extremely agonizing for the sheep. So much so that they would often be seen out in the field butting their heads against a rock, rubbing their noses against a fence, beating their heads into bushes, Sometimes sheep have been known to even kill themselves just trying to find relief from the agonizing irritation of those larvae. Sheep are so afraid of this that even if they just see a swarm of these flies nearby, they'll run and hide. They'll stampede. They'll refuse to eat. They'll stomp their feet. And shepherds can avoid all of this by pouring this special olive oil mixed with herbs and spices onto the head of the sheep and work it down into the wool of the sheep, and all around the nose of the sheep. And the change when they do this is immediate. 
the sheep are no longer restless. They're no longer afraid. They're no longer panicked and aggravated. They are peacefully content because they know they're protected from the flies. Now, when we think of flies, we think of just minor annoyances to be swatted away, right? Flies are just, oh, you know, they're bothersome, but they're not life and death. But how often do we let seemingly small things bug us, right? We let little things bug us and irritate us and drive us crazy. We even talk about beating our heads against a wall sometimes because of these minor annoyances in our lives. A second affliction that oil on the head protects against is a parasite called scab. Okay, And scab, the thing about scab that's so dangerous is it can be passed from one sheep to another. As the sheep rub heads together, they can pass along this virus. Sheep don't really practice social distancing, I guess. But the oil on the head of these sheep can not only repress and kill this, this parasite, but it can keep one sheep from passing it to another and then infecting the whole flock. So notice how oil on the sheep's heads protect them from worry over the irritation of flies. It protects them from spreading the disease of the head onto others. Now, in the Bible, anointing oil is usually symbolic of the presence of God, especially the Holy Spirit. And just as oil protects the sheep's head, so the Holy Spirit protects and guards the hearts and minds of the believer. I want you to, to read with me on the screen. See this, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Listen to this, verses 10 through 16. Paul says, The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the man's spirit within him? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. We have not received the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the Spirit, expressing spiritual truths in spiritual words. The man without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual man makes judgments about all things, but he himself is not subject to any man's judgment. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. As the mind of Christ is formed within us by the Spirit of God, we begin to bear the fruit of His character. We begin to bear the love of Jesus, the joy, the peace of Jesus, the patience, the kindness, the gentleness, the faithfulness, the self-control of Jesus because the mind of Christ is being formed in us. And when we're being tormented by the irritations and the trials of life, when Satan is attacking our mind with worry and doubt, fear and temptation, we should cry out to God and say, Father, anoint my mind with the oil of your Spirit. Guard my thoughts. Guard my heart and mind and give me that peace that passes all understanding. Give me your thoughts, Lord. But our minds also need to be guarded against the parasitic thoughts and lies and deadly ideas that come into our mind from others and that damages our thinking, damages our psyches, poisons our desires. Just as scab passes its deadly disease when sheep put their heads together, our minds can have some deadly diseases when we put our heads together with other people, can't they? Sometimes we put our heads together with those whose minds are carnal, 
who are led by the spirit of the world, not by the spirit of God, who fail to discern spiritual things. Consider how much influence we allow the media to have on our minds. The mass media, social media, the mainstream media. Consider how much Hollywood and Silicon Valley and mainstream news influence and shape the way we think. Just stop for a minute and think about how much time you spend looking at a screen. When you're looking at that screen, you're giving people influence over what you think. You're allowing them to shape your perspective. And how many of those people are being led by the Spirit of God? How many of those people do you think have the mind of Christ? How infected are our ideas? Our emotions and decisions, our impulses and desires, how infected are they by the thinking of the world? And just like with the coronavirus, there can be people around us infected with idea viruses and they're asymptomatic. We look at them and there are teachers and coaches, they're political leaders and scientists, they're moms and dads and athletes and entertainers, they're churchgoers and ministers. They're, they're polite. They're kind, they're funny, they're smart, they're interesting people. Certainly they can't be infected with idea viruses, can they? Well, yes, they can be. And many are. Idea viruses like critical race theory, intersectionality, which are as anti-Christian as they come, Marxism, postmodernism, New Age spirituality, false doctrines masquerading in sheep's clothing. There are plenty of parasitic thoughts and ideas in our world. And we need the anointing oil of God's Spirit. We need God's Word applied to our minds to protect us from these increasingly violent and abhorrent ways of thinking. The violence-tolerating, hate-filled, prejudiced views that are being pushed upon us openly, ironically, as being tolerant and woke. The greed, cynicism, and disrespectful attitudes that reject and malign everything that is good, pure, and beautiful. We need the anointing of God to help us think as Paul writes in Philippians 4.8 when he says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is honorable, whatever is just and pure, whatever is lovely and commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Those are the kinds of thoughts that we should have in our minds. So the anointing of God for sheep reminds us that God anoints our minds with His truth to protect us from the irritations of life and from the parasitic ideas of a lost world in darkness. But there's also the anointing of our heads for guests. Let's look at this analogy. It was the custom of a good host to provide oil for the head of their guests to refresh them from their journey in the hot, dusty environments of the Middle East. We see this pictured in Luke 7. Remember the story in Luke 7 when Jesus is at a dinner and he's at this house with all these guests and the host of the dinner is there and this woman comes in with an alabaster jar of ointment and she breaks it and she pours it on Jesus' feet. And the people in the room are just indignant. And they become critical of what she's doing. And Jesus responds and he says this to the host of the, of the meal. He says this in verse 35. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. It's an example of how it was customary for a host, who was a good host, would provide 
oil for the head and the faces of his guests. The picture of God anointing our heads with oil once again tells us that God refreshes. He renews and restores us from our weary journey, especially when we're having to contend with our enemies. When our gracious host anoints us in the presence of our enemies, it's like he's risking further infuriating them as he honors us by pulling out all the stops. And does God care what they think? No. And that's why God spares no expense to lavish us as the guests at his table with his love. The indwelling Spirit of God reinvigorates us when service wears us down. He renews us from all the demands of life, all the battles we fight, all the wounds that we bear. We can cast all our cares on Him because we know He cares for us. We can pray for the Spirit to constantly fill us, renew us, and refresh us, to form the mind of Christ in us because His mercies are new every morning and He is a well that never runs dry. And that brings us to the third thing that He gives us. He gives us the prepared table, the anointing oil, and the overflowing cup. He gives us a cup that overflows. Here David refers to that constant supply of drink that is provided by an attentive host. You know when you go to a good restaurant, a really nice restaurant, it's got a good waiter or waitress, they don't wait for you to have to pick up that glass and do like this, right? They are, they are attentive. They make sure that it stays nice and filled for you. And David is saying that the Lord is like a generous host who keeps your cup filled to the brim till it's overflowing with the most satisfying drink imaginable. You never have to say, God, I need a little bit more here. He keeps the blessings coming. It's a picture of God who pours His abundant supply of grace in our lives, which is more than sufficient to strengthen and sustain us in the most dangerous and draining of circumstances. God is the infinite source of all we need for life and ministry. And Jesus echoes this in our New Testament passage when he tells us that he has come to give us not just life, but life what? Abundant. Abundant life. Life that's overflowing is what he says. And Paul prays this for the church in Rome in Romans 15. He says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may what? Overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Our God is a good, gracious, generous God who wants to give you every good gift. He wants to fill your life with blessing so that His river of grace can flow through you into the lives of other people around you so that you can generously share the riches of His love and grace. He's a good God. Amen? He's a good shepherd. He's a good, good Father. He's a gracious host far more than we could ever deserve. Have you accepted His invitation? Have you ever accepted the invitation of Christ to come to that table? Don't pass that up. Because Jesus laid down His life. Jesus paid the ultimate price so that you could sit at His table and feast. He's come to rescue you from the enemies of Satan and sin and self and eternal separation from God. Have you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Is He the host of your life? Is He your good shepherd? If not, I pray you would make make sure that He is today. I would love nothing more in just a moment than to talk with you 
and help you know that you belong to the shepherd. Those of us who are Christians, let me ask you this. Are you seeking the mind of Christ? Are you asking the Holy Spirit to anoint your head daily with God's truth? To protect you from worry and fear and anxiety? To counteract the lies, the idea viruses, those parasitic thoughts that that, that tend to worm their way into our brains? And they can poison so much in our lives. Maybe for some of you, you feel like, yeah, my mind's already been infected. I've already been listening to the lies of the world. I've already bought into all the the PC stuff out there that doesn't line up with the glorious Word of God. And You can ask the Spirit of God to take the Word of God and give you the mind of Christ. I pray you would do that today. And maybe for you, you need that overflowing cup. Maybe for you, you just need to stop for a minute and take your eyes off the enemies. Take your eyes off the dark valley before or behind you. And you instead need to look at the good shepherd who has always been there with you, who is there to provide for you, to give you rest, to give you refreshment. He's there to guide your footsteps. Maybe you just need to stop and say, Lord, I have not adequately given you praise and thanksgiving for how you have blessed me with an overflowing cup. The cup isn't just half full or half empty. With Jesus, it's overflowing. And I pray that you would acknowledge that today. Would you stand and pray with me? And I pray that the Spirit of God would lead you to respond today to some aspect of this, to come to that table and become a child of God, to ask God to anoint your mind with His Spirit, to stop and just give Him thanksgiving for the overflowing cup that He's already given you. Let's pray. Father, we love You and thank You. You are a good God. You are a gracious host. And it's so easy for us to be distracted. It's so easy for us to be discouraged. It's so easy for us to take our eyes off of your presence and your blessings and your goodness and to fixate on the annoyances and on the trials and on the dark paths and on the enemies around us. And we get overwhelmed and we get weary and we get tired. God, I pray that you would help us to focus on your presence. Help us to rest in your arms, to trust you in this moment in which we all find ourselves. And if there's anybody who has, to, who has yet to turn from their sins and put their trust in Jesus, if there's anyone here today or watching or listening that says, you know, I don't know that I've accepted that invitation to his table, I pray they would do it today. I pray your spirit would move among us. Uh, let's just hold off on the song till the end, okay? So we're going to actually um, uh, dismiss those of you who are on the radio and online because we're going to enter into a very brief called Church Conference, and to all of our guests in the room, if you'll just be patient with us for just a moment, this will not take long at all. So once we are offline and um, off the radio, we will enter into conference. Uh, Cleve will give me that sign and let me know that uh, we're good to go.